Well, we are in the concluding portion of James, and uh, as is our custom, I'm going to have Jim Kelly come up and read the section that we're looking at this morning. This would be James chapter 5, verses 12 through 20, 12 through the end of the chapter. So, Jim, if you'd come. James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effect of prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain on the earth. And the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, may God help us to understand this section of Scripture as we look at it this morning. As I said, this is really getting to the end of our time here in James. And what we've tried to point out is the general context is that James was writing to various groups of Jewish Christians uh, to help them to understand what authentic faith is all about And especially in times of suffering and persecution, these were Christians, Jewish Christians that had been scattered because of persecution. And so here he comes to the end of this letter, and he says, but above all, there in verse 12. And I don't think this above all is just referring to that verse. It's really applying to this final section of the letter. In other words, he was saying, here are some things of primary importance that I want you to get a hold of. Especially, I'm going to emphasize these things, he says, as as I conclude this letter. So, he says in verse 12 that uh, we need to be concerned about our speech. It's a primary area. In fact, he spent a lot of time in this this letter on the subject of speech. So here he's emphasizing that God's people, as he's closing this letter, he's emphasizing that God's people 
should be those who are known for straightforward, honest speech. We should not need to make oaths in order to convince people to believe what we say. Our yes should be yes and our no, no. And I thought I'd just say something to the children here. That's the way we need to be. We need to have it so if mom and dad ask us, did you do that? You can say yes or no, and it's the right thing to say. You're honest with them. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. In fact, I'll say this. If you will be an honest person, you'll end up in heaven. If you'll be honest with the creation as you look out on it and see what God's made, you'll be honest with what that testifies to you. If you'll be honest with what your conscience is saying to you, if you'll be honest with God's Word, if you'll be honest with what you hear about Jesus, you'll end up in heaven. So honesty is a very important thing, and so it's not surprising that James would end up as saying this is something of primary importance. He goes on then from an area of really wrong use of speech, using oaths and swearing, to a primary area of the right use of speech, the area of prayer. It seems to me that he deals with three different kinds of prayer in this section. First of all, in verse 13, he's dealing with individual prayer, prayers that we make on our own. And then in verses 14 and 15, he's talking about calling for the elders to pray for the sick. And then in verse 16, he, he speaks of praying for one another. So you have really three different aspects of prayer here. Now what he's saying is that all Christians should be people of prayer. We should pray when we're suffering. We should praise when things are going well. And sometimes that's, that's an area where we're somewhat deficient in. If we're not careful, we allow times of happy, happiness to make us complacent, praying less because things are going well. The Bible instruction, and this is what he's, again, you know, he's emphasizing here. This is important. The Bible instruction is to pray in all situations. Some form of prayer, some form of calling upon God, uh, should be part of our lives all the time. Prayer, praise, supplication, thanksgiving, intersection. This is appropriate speech. This is the way to use the uh, tongue that God's given us. So he goes on from this general exhortation to pray to a specific situation related to prayer, and that is praying for the sick. The sick person is to call upon the elders to pray over him or her. We spent actually two messages on, on this and uh, the, talked quite a bit about miraculous healing and this thing of praying for the sick. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here just to review those things, except just to say I, I think it's good to emphasize that God is sovereign in this area of healing. He may graciously grant the prayer of faith that will restore the sick one. But it is wrong to teach that God always heals people, at least in this life. Those, though the supernatural kingdom of God has been initiated, 
it has not been consummated yet. Only when Christ comes again will all sickness be done away with. In fact, we know from church history, and we tried to bring some of the examples of this out uh, in the past messages, we know from church history that God does still heal miraculously, but also that he often perfects some of even his most choice and precious saints through suffering. Whatever the case, healed or not healed, we should always rest in the sovereign good purposes of our Heavenly Father. And we've been talking about authentic faith in this letter. Well, one part of authentic faith in God is accepting the fact that He knows better than we do what is ultimately for our good and what will ultimately advance His kingdom the most. So we can rest in the good purposes of our Heavenly Father in this area of healing. This brings us then to verse 16, which we just barely touched on last time. So I want to kind of start up there this time. The first thing to notice about this verse is the word therefore. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So, as is usual, you have to make the connection. It's when there's a therefore, you look back and see what he's referring to. So, I think the connection between verse 16 and what James has said uh, tells us, helps us understand this verse. I think it is implied that confession was often part of the healing process spoken of in the, in the previous verses. As we brought out last time, and it's good to emphasize this again, personal sin is not always the cause of a particular sickness that we might have, but it could be a factor. And if it is, if sin is involved, confession is very important. One of the first questions that confronts us when we start dealing with verse 16 is whether James is still directing his comments toward the healing that involves the elders. I don't think so. I think he's changing the emphasis here a little bit. I think he is now moving to a more generalized aspect of, faith, of prayer which incorporates the whole church. When he says, uh, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. He's not just talking about the elders and someone who's sick. Now he's talking about the whole congregation. The one another are the believers of a particular church. Another question has to do with whether he has now begun to focus on spiritual healing and not physical healing. We said that verse 15 and those verses prior to that were actually dealing with physical healing. Uh, again, I think he's thinking in more general terms and probably thinking of both spiritual and physical healing here in this verse. The two types of healing sometimes go together, and James is probably not sharply distinguishing the two in his thinking at this point. A Christian who is walking with God, uh, seeking God, may yet need physical healing, even if he's doing well spiritually. But sometimes sin has brought about sickness, and in that case there needs to be both spiritual and physical healing. 
if sin is involved, that, that needs to be taken care of along with any physical affliction that's been the result of that. Sometimes also physical affliction can wear us out spiritually. And spiritual oppression can affect us physically. So there's this interaction, you see. So I think it's quite possible that James has both physical and spiritual healing in mind in verse 16 here. One writer put it this way. He said, his focus is no longer on the specific case that he has mentioned in verse 14, is any among you sick? But on the general need of the community to be involved regularly in mutual confession and prayer as a way of treating cases of sickness that might arise. So again, James has moved from talking about the elders praying to talking about the importance of prayer in general in the church amongst the whole congregation. As Christians, we all have the privilege and the responsibility to pray for one another that we might be healed, both physically and spiritually. This should be a part of our, of our life as a church. Now, I want to say just a brief word concerning this area of confession and prayer. I touched a little on this, but I think it's worth going into more here today. Like every teaching in the Bible, the teaching on confession has been abused. Some confession can actually do more harm than good. Some have taught that public confession before the church is very often a necessary thing. In other words, it should be going on all the time in the church. Others, like the Roman Catholic Church, have taught that you should confess all your sins to a priest at least once a year, I think is the way it's normally put. You have to go to this confessional and uh, spill out all your sins through this little opening in the, this box you set in to a priest that hears these things. Uh, now, you do see in the New Testament that sometimes the church dealt with sin corporately and publicly. There's a number of examples of that. For instance, in Corinthians, where they had to deal with some sin that was in the church, and it was done corporately. Uh, it can be one way to help people deal with pride and self-centeredness. And when sin is dealt with corporately, it can be a way of warning other believers to steer clear of unrighteousness. On the other hand, we need to be careful not to go to extremes in saying that James is exhorting his readers to either always make the public confession of all their sins or that they need to completely confess all their sins to some special individual, some spiritual individual in private. Neither of those things are taught in the scriptures. And uh, you, if you look through church history, you'll find examples of those extremes uh, coming coming out. Confession, this is the way I tried to summarize it, and it leaves some unanswered questions that uh, I'll try to answer a little bit later on here, but confession should be made every time to God. Where there's sin, you need to confess it to God always. Most of the time, to those we've sinned against. If we've sinned against someone, we need to confess that sin. Now, I'll clarify that a little bit more in a moment. So, every time, 
confession should be made to God. Most of the time it should be to anyone who we've sinned against. Sometimes to trusted individuals for the purpose of counsel and accountability. Sometimes that's the case. And in certain situations, confession should be made to the whole church if it is a sin that is known and recognized by the whole church. Now, what Satan wants us to do in this area of sin is not to confess. In fact, what he delights to do is to isolate us. If I, if I sin, well, I just stay away from God's people. That's exactly the opposite of what God wants you to do. That's what Satan wants you to do, to isolate us from fellow believers who we could share our struggles with and who would pray for us in this area of being delivered from sin. So we need to be aware of that. But on the other hand, we don't want to let Satan push us into the other extreme and make us feel that we have to tell all of our sins to people who are not part of the problem or part of the solution. So don't get pushed into that. Now, what I'd like to do to just maybe clarify a little bit here is to share some thoughts from Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter was a, a Puritan about the same time as Oliver Cromwell there in England. And he had some thoughts on this area of confession to others. Uh, what I've done is tried to take what you might call Puritanese, which is a language of long, difficult sentences. <laughs> I tried to modernize it a little bit. So these, these are Baxter's uh, directions for confessing sin to others, uh, put in my words, but they're actually his, his thoughts. The general principle is not to confess to another if it will do more harm than good. I mean, that just makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. If it do more harm than good, you shouldn't do it. <clears throat> uh, examples of that would be, when the wrong was in secret and not known to the injured party, like some secret thought you might have had to do wrong to someone, but they, you didn't do it, and they don't know about that secret thought, well, it'll probably do more harm than good to go and try to confess that to someone. They weren't even aware of the problem. Yeah. You will make a problem if you do that. <laughs> so such confession will only unnecessarily trouble the other person's mind. Another example would be that you must consider the ramifications of the confession if it will injure a third party. Sometimes it's not just you and the person you're uh, confessing to that are involved, and you need to consider the ramifications to some third party, bring them any undeserved misery. Again, if the injured party, and this is kind of a, uh, a different one, I wouldn't have thought of this, but I think there's some validity to it. He said, if the injured party is so mean-spirited and inhuman that he will make use of the confession to, ru to the ruin of the person who confesses their sin, or brings upon them much greater penalty than he deserves. See what he's saying? I mean, you're dealing with somebody who's just so, so cantankerous and mean-spirited that they're going to use it as a means of bringing great harm to you or others involved. 
In such a situation, it may be permissible not to confess to that type of person. Another thing to consider is how far the confession will reflect dishonor upon Christ and be used to dishonor him. This, I suppose, would generally have to do with confession to the, an ungodly person, you know, out into the world. You've got to have used some discretion on these things. On the other hand, now that's some of the areas that we need to be careful about, but Baxter does say this, and he's actually he spends more time on this. He says, a well-informed conscience. Okay, there's a good criteria there. This is something that's clear to you, that's clear from God's Word, clear to you. A well-informed conscience tells you that confession is your duty. He says, do not let pride or reputation keep you from it. If, if God's shown you that you need to confess this to somebody, don't let pride or repu, reputation keep you from it. But do, do it whatever it may cost. Be true to your conscience and do not willfully put off your duty. To live in neglect of known duty is to live in sin. If you know, if God's shown you you need to confess this, you better do it. Consider that it may be a lack of true repentance that makes a person unwilling to make a just confession. If you're unwilling to confess that sin, it, there may be some problem in the area of repentance. You're not really repenting about the sin. And then he says this, the true uses of confession have to do with demonstrating a hatred of sin and repairing the wrong that you've done to others and also the dishonor that you've done to Christianity. It is also a warning to those who hear hear that confession, to take heed of sin and temptation, helping them prevent a similar fall. He's talking about what good things come from confession. Is it, he says, it is worth all your shame if you save another from sinning by your confession. It can also be used to help you to live more carefully in the future. You know, it's not, easy, it's not an easy thing to confess your sin. I mean, it's something that you don't want to be doing all the time. So he's saying it can help us to live more carefully in the future. So in the area of confession of sin, we need discernment. We need to be sensitive to what God's showing us, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We don't need a bunch of rules and regulations like, you know, you need to confess all your sins to the priest once a year. We don't, that's not what we need. We need to listen to what God's showing us through his spirit. So, what we should glean from these verses is that in the spiritual battle, the battle that we're all in for purity and holiness, confession and prayer are two major weapons that we need to have in our arsenal. Confession and prayer. These words are directed to the general life of the church, urging the Christians not to think that they must struggle against sin and sickness on their own. We have a, a body of believers, you see. 
the church is there to help. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. But we also need to recognize this is only one verse in the Bible. This is the only verse that I'm aware of that explicitly commands believers to confess their sins to one another. The real emphasis in this verse is prayer. That's why he ends verse 16 by reminding the readers of the great power of prayer. He says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, we need to just think about this verse just a little bit. Is James talking about some group of believers who are particularly righteous who can pray this way? Or is he saying that prayer is a powerful weapon for even the most humble believer? Well, the way I worded that, I think you know that <laughs> the answer is the latter. I think that he is thinking of those who are righteous by virtue of trusting in Christ and are committed to walk with him in righteousness. That's, that's what we're talking about. That's the kind of person that can pray and see much accomplished. Not, it doesn't have to be some super saint. Uh, they, they may have some failings. This person he's talking about here in, at the end of verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. They may have some failings, some flaws, but nevertheless, they are truly seeking to follow God and have a genuine love for the brethren. The prayer of that type of person can accomplish much, James says. Now, the reason I say that apart from just the rest of the scriptures that would teach that, is because he uses Elijah as an example. But he doesn't use Elijah as an example of some super saint. But as one, he says, who is a man of like nature as us. He said, someone who is of like nature as us prayed and saw miraculous answers. He saw powerful miracles. But you know, if you read the account, he also displayed times of weakness and failure. He was a person of like nature as us. He knew the ups and downs of faith and fear. Yet, he knew what it was to pray earnestly about something. He's, he's, he, James is encouraging us to pray, you see. Not encouraging us to think, well, that has to be some super person that can pray this way. No, he's encouraging the people of God to pray this way. <clears throat> the actual phrase that he uses here is that he prayed with prayer. If you look in the margin, if you have a, a New American Standard, in, for verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly. The actual uh, uh, Greek there is that he he prayed with prayer. Isn't that interesting? He prayed with prayer. <clears throat> uh, it seems, I think that implies an intensity, uh, a, a fervency in his prayers, and perhaps a continuance, you know, continuing in prayer. He prayed and prayed with prayer. <clears throat> now, Actually, the Old Testament account does not tell us 
that he prayed at the beginning of the three and a half years. James tells us that, but if we look back in uh, the account, it doesn't tell us about him praying at the beginning of this time of, of uh, drought and famine. We do have a record of how he prayed at the end of that time, and, and I think we should look at that because it will help us here in our understanding of these verses. So let's turn to 1 Kings 18. We're going to pick up the account here as he's praying uh, for this drought to end. Uh, Three and a half years after he'd prayed before, but like I say, that we don't have the account of that first prayer. But we do have the one here in First Kings 18. Now, I'm not going to re- review the situation here very much. Actually, Garrett just spoke on this section of Elijah dealing with the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. So that's the context of this. A tremendous uh, effectual prayer of a righteous man in that situation. But let's pick up with verse 41 because this tells us about the prayer that he prayed. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of heavy rain. Now, nobody else heard that. That was, I'm convinced that was in Elijah's mind. God was showing him, okay, it's time to pray. And in his mind, he's hearing the sound uh, of the roar of heavy of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up and ate and drank, but Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He's, he's starting to pray now for this. What God has shown him is coming. Well, that didn't lessen his responsibility. He needed to pray. He crouched down, it says, on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. The servant comes back and said, There's nothing. So Elijah says, Well, I guess that's the end. I don't know what to do. I prayed. (laughs) That's not what happened. He said, Go back. And they did this seven times had that servant go back. And in those times, I'm convinced Elijah was praying. And it came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, the servant's telling this, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy rain does not stop you. In other words... It's coming. It's coming. It may just be a cloud the size of a man's hand, not very big out there, but Elijah knew God's just about ready to answer this prayer. So go tell Elijah you better get out of here. Prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy rain does not stop you. So it came about in a little while that the sky grew black with clouds and the wind, and there was a heavy shower. 
and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. So, what, what do we see here? Uh, well, we see a righteous man who stood for truth at the cost of his life. Now, we didn't read that part, but that's certainly what happened just prior to this there on Mount Carmel with these prophets of Baal. We see a man who trusted God and prayed earnestly. He went up there on the top of the mountain and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Prayed earnestly. So a man who continued in prayer. We see a man who saw God answer prayer in, amaz- in an amazing way. Not just with the prophets of Baal, with this, but with this rain, heavy rain, coming after three and a half years of drought. So the point is that God uses such people as his instruments to pray, to bring about answers and bring about his purposes, God's purposes. But as we read on in the account, we also see a person who is capable of becoming fearful and dejected. In other words, he was a man of like nature as ours. So let's read on here. Uh, we'll just read the first eight verses of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Remember, there were 450 prophets of Baal. After God sends the fire upon the altar and shows who true God is, uh, Elijah has those prophets um, executed. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. What's, what's Jezebel saying? She said, I'm going to have you killed. You're going to end up just like those prophets. Now, here's the amazing thing. This man that seemed to stand so strong there on Mount Carmel, and he, that is Elijah, He was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. But here's here's this man of like nature as us. And he is afraid. Afraid of this woman, Jezebel. And he runs, hides, and says, I'm ready to die. So I bring all that out just to say that when we're talking about Elijah, we're talking about a person who is of like nature as us, and yet what we're told is that the effective, fervent prayer of a man like that, any of us, you see, can accomplish much. Actually, later on you see him in a cave 
still running, thinking he's the only person that's actually serving God. In some ways, these failings of Elijah should encourage us. He was certainly no perfect believer, yet he prayed with prayer, and God did miraculous things through him. That's the part we're supposed to, I think we're supposed to take away from this. Now this might be a good place to touch briefly again upon the interaction of the body and the soul, because that's what we're seeing here with Elijah, I think. I think I mentioned this quote before by one of the old Puritans, but I want to say it again. He said that the body and the soul live so close together that they catch each other's diseases. You've got to think about that, but it's really a profound statement. The body and soul live so close together that they catch each other's diseases. So the point is that sin and sickness are often connected. For instance, the guilt of sin can cause sickness. The guilt of sin can cause sickness. Remember, David said this in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groanings all the day. On the other hand, physical weakness and emotional turmoil or long-term sickness can wear us out spiritually. The body and soul live so close together that they catch each other's diseases. So I think that's what we're seeing here with Elijah. There was uh, great emotional turmoil, plus the fact that he was physically weak. I mean, he, he's dealt with the prophets of Baal all day long on Mount Carmel. Then he's been in charge of having 450 prophets of Baal slain there. I mean, if you want to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, Elijah was a prime candidate. He'd just been around 450 people uh, being put to death. So I think that he was worn out physically and emotionally. And consequently, you see him cowering here when, Eli when Jezebel uh, threatens him. So, what's the point of bringing all that up? The point is, we need each other's prayers all the time. We are men of and women of like nature as Elijah. Well, let's bring this to a close then. Here are some summary principles from this section on prayer, verses 13 through 18. The main point, I mean, don't miss this one. The main point is surely to pray at all times, in all situations. Be people of prayer. That's the main point uh, James wants us to get as he's coming, concluding his letter here. One of the above all things that he's talking about is prayer. He's saying, be people of prayer. Another thing 
I would say, considering the context of the persecution and difficulties that these Christians were going through, the way to persevere in difficult trials and even persecution, one of the main ways to persevere is to pray. Instead of worrying or being anxious or complaining or being resentful or bewildered or blaming others or falling into self-pity or giving up, instead of all those things, do this thing, pray. Do this thing. Another thing he's bringing out here is don't forget to pray in the good times, the cheerful times. Don't become complacent or lax. Return and give thanks to God for all his goodness. In times of sickness, believe that God can take this away, but keep the biblical balance, acknowledging that God knows what's best. He may use doctors or medicine or miraculous healing or the body's own ability to repair itself, or he may not bring about healing. It's not wrong to pray for miraculous healing, but it is wrong to assume, to assume it or to insist upon it. Authentic faith, again, which is what James has been talking about here, authentic faith as it relates to this area of healing is humble, self-surrendering surrendering faith. Uh, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. So, just putting yourself in God's hands in this area of healing. I like the way one Christian put it. He was praying concerning serious sickness in his own life. This, is, this was his prayer. Lord, if it will be to your glory, heal suddenly. If it will glorify you more, heal gradually. If it will glorify you even more, may your servant remain sick a while. And if it will glorify your name still more, take me to yourself in heaven. Put it in God's hands. Along with this, realize that as wonderful as physical healing is, God's main concern now is not our physical health, but the health of our souls. You see, if our souls are taken care of, you can be sure the healing of the body will eventually follow. Maybe not in this life, but it will follow if your soul's taken care of. On the other hand, if our souls are neglected, we could in the end lose everything. So the main emphasis always has to do with the health of our souls. Where sin is involved, I'm just trying to summarize what's in this section. Where sin is involved, there needs to be confession. First of all, to God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we must be willing to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit in terms of who else we may need to confess to. And surely one of the big things he wants us to get out of this section here is that we all need to be praying for one another. We need each other's prayers. As Christians, we are all repentant sinners 
in constant need of the grace of God. Every one of us. At various times in the Christian life, each one of us will most likely need prayer for healing either physically or spiritually, and the church should be the place where we can be honest about our needs. The church should be the place where we can be honest about our needs without fear of being looked down upon or judged. Remember, James says, Do not speak against one another, verse 11 of chapter 4. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. So, that's not to be characteristic of the church. The church is the place where we can share our needs openly and honestly. James was telling these early Christians, instead of judging, instead of judging each other, confess to each other. That's just the opposite. Confess your needs and your sins to one another. Instead of criticizing each other, intercede for each other. And then lastly, I think we should come away from this section with the realization that the effective prayer of God's people can accomplish much. We should not set up some standard of fervency or frequency in prayer as if what James is saying here is only for some special, exceptional, spiritual Christians. That's not what we should come away from. The important thing that James, I think, would leave us with here out of this section is that we need to pray. And we need to keep on praying and keep on looking to God. So may God help us to do as James says here, to pray with prayer. To pray with prayer for one another. Well, that's... uh, That's getting us pretty close to the end of this book. We have two two verses left. And Lord willing, we'll look at those next time.